Welcome to Losing a Child, Always Andy's Mom. On this podcast, we journey through the devastating experience of the death of a child. Grief is seldom discussed openly in our culture, and the death of a child makes people feel even more uncomfortable. We approach the topic openly and honestly, speaking to people who have lost loved ones and experts who help care for them. Whether you are a parent experiencing loss or someone who wants to support another going through this tragedy, this podcast strives to offer hope and help. Welcome to episode 107 of Losing a Child, Always Andy's Mom. I'm Marcy Larson, Andy's mom. Today I have the privilege to speak with Stephanie, Corey's mom. Stephanie lost her son, Corey, to spinal muscular atrophy as a young infant. Corey actually would have turned nine this past week. Today we talk about Corey, his diagnosis, and a little bit about SMA in general. And we also talk about what these nine years have been like and how healing slowly does come over time. I just want to remind you all to go to my website and be able to see little pictures of Corey. You can also sign up to be on my email list so you're emailed each week with the pictures and the write-up and a link to the current episode. If you feel led to help support the podcast financially, there is a donate page there too. Still remember that you can go on Amazon.com and in fact go to smile.amazon.com and pick Always Andy's Mom as a charity and you can get a small donation that way as well. As always, you can still follow me on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter at Always Andy's Mom. So for now, please enjoy this wonderful conversation with Stephanie, Corey's mom. Thank you so much, Stephanie, for agreeing to come on the Always Andy's Mom podcast today and talk about your son, Corey. Yeah, I'm super excited. Yeah, very good. Well, why don't you just start out by telling us about Corey, maybe even pregnancy and what he was like as a little baby. I had a super normal pregnancy. Everything was healthy, uh, went really well. My delivery went smooth. He passed all of his tests. He was super healthy. We went home from the hospital. Like, I think it was like 24 hours later. Oh, wow. Quick one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, super quick. Everything went, you know, really good. He was, I mean, just so cute. Yeah. First baby for you? A second. Second baby. Okay. So you had one at home already. Yeah. Yeah. My daughter had, yeah, my daughter had just started kindergarten. So. Oh, so there was pretty big gap actually. Yeah. Yep. She was like a little mom, but she was really Mm -hmm. excited. So, um, it was, it was good. And he, yeah, he was such a good baby. He didn't really, I mean, he wasn't very fussy or anything like that. I mean, he was perfectly healthy. And then about uh, maybe six weeks old, I started noticing some like kind of small developmental physical milestones that he wasn't hitting. He was kind of more like sleepy he would sleep a lot and wasn't we were doing like tummy time and stuff and he wasn't really like trying to pick his head up or hold his head up but I I didn't really I mean it had been six years since I had a baby so you know I didn't I'm like oh he's just lazy like I didn't really think anything of it and then he was about six weeks old and he started getting what 
I thought I described it as like a cough. Like I thought he was getting some kind of respiratory illness and it was a Friday. So I called the pediatrician and I was like, you know, Hey, I just, I really want to bring him in before the weekend hits, you know, cause he's only six weeks old. So I thought, you know, maybe since my daughter had just started kindergarten, you know, maybe she brought something home to him mm-hmm. or, you know, something. So I went in and she definitely agreed with me and she kind of noticed, which I did not pick up on this at the time. She noticed that he was a little weak, you know, than mm-hmm. what he should be. So she sent us to a local uh, smaller branch children's hospital in our town um, just to get like a chest x-ray to make sure he didn't have pneumonia. Yeah, because she probably thought he was weak because he was just really sick from an illness. And uh-huh. she definitely noticed, like I said at the time, I thought that I, I described it as like a cough because he would he would do this, you know, this have this little respiratory thing that sounded like a cough, you know, every couple minutes or so or sporadically. So we went to get the x-ray and at the time I, I wasn't sure, you know, they didn't, they didn't tell me a whole lot when we were there. So yeah, so we did the x-ray and they came in and they had asked us to go ahead and go downtown to like the main campus because uh, they were kind of concerned with some findings on the, his chest x-ray and that's all they really said. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure you thought infection, right? Yeah. Yes. Like I was thinking like, oh, okay, so he has pneumonia, you know, we'll go there, maybe antibiotics. Mm-hmm. IV maybe deal with it. So we got there and kind of the same thing. They they actually admitted him. The diagnosis was um, just general weakness. Mm-hmm. So they had admitted us and we were there for, I think, two days. I, I worked in healthcare prior to what I do now. So, you know, I was very open to all of the residents coming in and, you know, everybody has to learn. So, so we had um, lots of people in and out of our room for two days and nobody was really saying anything. They're just kind of the same thing. Like, oh, you know, he presented six weeks old, general weakness, poor tone, stuff like that. And then it wasn't until the third day I actually had a group of residents had come in in the morning before rounds to do their physical exam. And they went out of the room, but they kind of stopped in the hallway outside of the room and they were like grouping together and talking about stuff well they didn't close the door all the way and I was standing at the sink right next to the door Mm. like washing a bottle out and I kind of overheard them and I heard one of them say the word SMA I had no idea what it was didn't know what Mm -hmm. it meant Mm -hmm. but then they started talking and they were they were saying things like you know if he lives until he's six months old and if he lives to a year old and so I oh my word Yes. So oh, my word. Just, you know, broke down. And I, I just remember like running over to my phone and I did the worst thing you could ever do and Google it, obviously. And then, you know, at the time, so this was in 2012. Mm-hmm. So I Googled it. And in 2012, there was no treatment for SMA, just, mm-hmm. you know, preventative and comfort measures. So the life expectancy that you saw was age two the typical life expectancy. So I just, I remember just breaking down in the middle of the hospital room and a minute or so later, our nurse at the time had come in and she just, I, I, I felt so bad for her because I, it wasn't her fault at all, but she no. was like, I knew you heard that, you know, I'm so sorry. And 
the doctors ended up coming in and apologizing and and then we kind of had a long discussion because I'm like you know don't sugarcoat things I need to know like what I'm looking at what I, what's yeah. going on so that's when they kind of told me that a lot of the symptoms that he was presenting with the the low tone the weakness and then what they saw on the x-ray was kind of a bell-shaped chest from where he was belly breathing instead of you know normal with his intercostal muscles so so they said that it was all consistent with a genetic disease called spinal muscular atrophy and they wanted to test him for it obviously you know we agreed to that and so they sent off for the genetic testing and in between that time that we got the results back they did I mean so many other tests and he had so many pokes and prods and Mm -hmm. just so many other things and we were there for a total of 42 days oh my goodness yeah it was it was quite a long journey for us and we didn't actually get our diagnosis until I think almost maybe just a little over two weeks before he passed away wow yeah it was I I don't know what the holdup was Mm -hmm. yeah I think those things take took a long time back then it's hard to think now because now we're nine years later and it's things are so much different I know at one point they were kind of like throwing around botulism because a lot of the symptoms for botulism are Mm -hmm. very similar to SNA And they had said that, you know, when they see it, they kind of see it in a cluster. And I think they said that they had had like maybe two kids in the Cincinnati area who were treated for it around that time. Okay. So you're just hoping beyond hope, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But then, you know, ultimately they they came in and they told us that, um, you know, he he did come back that he had spinal muscular atrophy and based on there, there's four different types of SMA and, you know, type one is the most severe and they base it on when the symptoms onset and how many copies of an SMN2 gene you have. And so Mm -hmm. Corey had two mutated SMN1 genes. Okay that were essentially just blank. So they were missing. And then he only had three SMN2 genes. So he was a pretty weak type one. So at that point, you know, we got our diagnosis and we were kind of looking at how do, what do we, where do we go from here? How do we go home? You know, this is what we're dealing with. What are our next steps? And so we didn't even really get time to think about it because they were, doing a CPT therapy, kind of, you know, patting his back and stuff to break Mm -hmm. up some secretions that he wasn't strong enough to break up. And at this point, when they were doing that, we had actually moved from a regular room to a respiratory unit. um, And he was on a a BiPAP. He, it was, it was crazy. Now that I look back at it, it was so fast at the time, but now that I look back on everything, Mm -hmm. And look back at pictures and stuff. I can just see in the pictures his, like, regression. And it was just so quick the way that everything happened from this, you know, healthy, fat, chunky baby to, you know, just a few weeks later, you could tell that he had lost weight. And, you know, you could just see he was tired and he was working hard to breathe. And so, you know, at the time they were doing the CPT, they... The thought is that they broke loose some secretions that 
he just couldn't clear. And so he went into respiratory distress and we had to Mm. make the decision to intubate him, which we did. And so then from there, we were moved to the ICU. Sure. We were in the ICU for a little over a week and every couple days, you know, we would, we would look at his blood gases and we would look at his numbers. And when he went into respiratory distress, it, it, he collapsed his left lung. So Mm. he was, he was on the ventilator. We were trying to, you know, reinflate his lung, get that opened back up. And so we would do the x-rays every morning and everything was looking good. His blood gases were looking good. And so we would extubate and then he would always do really well for about you know, 10, 12 hours, everything would look good. And then he would just start to, you know, regress again. So we would have to re-intubate him. And Mm. we did that twice. And so, you know, the third time, you know, the doctor kind of came in and he, he said, you know, this is, this is where we're at. Yeah. We need to decide, you know, where you want to go moving forward because he may, never be able to you know breathe on his own essentially without being supported Mm -hmm. so that was uh not a great conversation no no not at all I had to think about it really really long and hard and for me looking back now it, it it really just sucks because in 2012 when all of this was happening the clinical trial had just started like Mm -hmm. the human phase for Spinraza, which came to be the first ever approved treatment for SNA. So it was just, you know, this much too late for him. So Mm -hmm. it just sucks so bad, but you know, ultimately given the, how he was and he was just so weak and I just couldn't fathom putting him through that anymore and like you could just I mean you could just see it in his face that he was just tired so you know I told the doctors that you know I I remember the conversation I we had relatively the same doctor that followed us kind of throughout the whole stay and I'm forever thankful to her because she was very she was very good with SMA where you know we would see some doctors come in obviously when it wasn't her rotation and they would um, try to start treatment and on, you know, different things. And they would say, well, let me talk to, you know, Dr. Leslie first. And then they would say, well, she said that normally that would be fine, but because he has SMA, let's not do this because, you know, X, Y, Z. So I was super grateful for her and her knowledge. And she actually, so she went off of her rotation this day and another doctor had come in and, you know, I remember telling him, I was like, I don't know, I, I don't know if we're ready to try to, you know, extubate again. And he's like, you know, no, I, his numbers look great. I think now's the time. And I just remember telling him, you know, this is the last time we're doing it. So, you know, I need you to be sure that that you think that he's ready. And so, mm-hmm. you know, all of his numbers look good. His x-ray looked good. And you know, every, everything essentially from a medical standpoint looked great. So we extubated and again, he did well for less time. This go around, it was only about six hours or so. And then, and then you could just tell that he was starting to work harder to breathe. And so we, we ended up doing another chest x-ray and 
his lung had collapsed again. So, mm-hmm. so this time we decided that, you know, we, we weren't going to extubate or I'm sorry, intubate again. Cause we just didn't want to put him through that anymore. So we, we had ended up giving him just some high flow oxygen through a nasal cannula and to just see, mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. to just kind of see what would happen. And he did okay for maybe, you know, 10 hours. This When we got the x-ray results back that his lung had collapsed again, I think it was around 11 p.m.-ish. Mm-hmm. And so he, he did okay throughout the night. But, I mean, you could just see him just getting worse. And so by the next afternoon, you know, they kind of told us that, we should probably, you know, call as much family as we wanted to come. We had quite a few family members that stopped by and it was, it was a very, very hard day. I don't, I don't even know that I remember much of anything mm-hmm. about that day, to be honest. Mm-hmm. I do remember the staff was incredible I, I do remember that much. They actually, um, throughout the whole process, they, they were great, especially when we got to the ICU because of all the equipment and stuff that's in there, you weren't supposed to like eat and drink in the room. And, mm-hmm. you know, they had like a family room, a couple rooms down that you had to go to and I was not leaving. <laughs> so there were definitely a few rules that were broken for me, <laughs> which I was grateful for. Cause yeah, I, I wasn't leaving. No. no. And then, so the last, the last two days, you know, when we kind of knew where we were headed, they had a regular bed in there so I could, you know, just lay with him and, mm-hmm. and that's, I mean, I don't really remember much about, I know that a lot of my family was in and out of the room and, you know, I just kind of laid there and, and held him. And then I think it was around a little before 10 you know, the doctor came in and he's like giving the nasal cannula and the oxygen is, is only supporting and it's, it's kind of stopping what's going to happen. So Mm -hmm. he's like, you know, at some point, if you're ready, you know, we can take it off and, and just kind of let him, you know, let his body do its natural thing Mm -hmm. and, and Mm -hmm. see what happens. And so I remember hearing those words, but I don't, I don't think they ever registered with me because you know, he had told me before he left, he's like, you know, whenever you're ready, just let the respiratory therapist know and she'll come in and we'll take everything off and, you know, whatever. And so I, when she came in the next time to check the settings, she had asked me about it and I was like, yeah, okay, you know, I guess we can, but I don't think it really sunk in to me at the time, like what mm-hmm. that actually meant. Yeah. Because he, I mean, he was just so weak and just so ready. So we took off the nasal cannula and it was just it was instant his you know sat started to drop and I I think it was only three minutes later that they were able to call it and wow yeah so I don't know that I would have expected that either as a mom I didn't you know I didn't and and you know you even though you know I look back at it and I know what was happening and you know I worked in an ER like I, I knew yeah, I knew what they were telling me. I just didn't. Usually, this doesn't register. No, at all. and you just can't wrap your head around it. No, you know, you just can't. can't. When it's your own child, you know. I mean, I yes. think back. I I was watching them do CPR on Andy. Yes, and I asked the question: Is he going to be okay? 
Yeah. I mean, what a honestly, what a stupid question to ask. Yeah. With what I know, I mean, there they are doing CPR. He has a chest. He has a needle sticking out of his chest. He is not going to be okay. Yeah. But in your mother's heart of hearts, you just you just are begging yeah. that it is, and you think it has to be. It just yes, has it, to be. It has to be. And I wasn't. I just. I, I, I just remember like looking up and I'm, I'm watching the monitors and I'm watching the numbers go down and, and you're like, no, no, and no, I'm like, this wait, can't be. wait, like, hold on. Like this, this is not what was supposed to happen. Like what, like what is happening? Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. That was it's just so was, hard on your mama's heart. Very, very hard. And when I look back, I am, I get, I don't know if thankful is the right word, but I am okay. I have learned to be okay with what happened because for a very long time I was questioning, you know, did I make the right decision? Did I, did I do, Mm -hmm. I mean, should I not have done that? Should I have tried to intubate him again? You know, how many times should I have tried to do it? Did I, did I give up too soon or, but you know, I've, I have come to be okay with my decision Mm-hmm. And it took a very long time to get there, <laughs> but, um, but I have come to be okay with it. And, and I'm glad in a sense that it, that it did happen the way that it did, because I got to be there and I got to hold him and, you know, I was singing to him the whole time. And so I can't imagine a better way to leave. So. Yeah. Yeah. And in that way, he did just sort of slip away. Yeah. Didn't he? And that's. That's nice a little bit to know. Yeah, yeah it was good. And then um, then he wasn't struggling. We had, you know, one of the chaplains had come in and he was asking us about almost immediately, which I know that they have to do that, about organ donation. And and I it just, I was like frozen. I'm like, well, you know, when I renew my driver's license every year, you know, I always select to be an organ donor, but never thought about that for my kids you know I don't don't ever want to have to think about that for my kids but then I just kind of looked at him and I was like well of course of course you know take you know take whatever you can I'm also thankful for that because you know nothing then could have helped him no there was no treatment there was no you know I, I look at some of the older kids now who had um who have type one and you know they're trached and they're got you know feeding tubes and it's so hard to grasp because cognitively they're perfect they're Mm -hmm. super smart and it's like they're just living this life that's not fair yeah i i really relate to that because my friend megan whom I've told you about, and Megan was on the show. Her, She's Willow's mom. She was on in May of 2020, and her daughter Willow died only two days before Andy. So we were in the same grief support groups, and Willow had SMA, and she was traked and on a ventilator yeah, and, and feeding tube, and but was just bright and yes. alive, and, you know, she had a twin sister, who could like talk for her basically, you know what I mean? And, and so I've seen that. So hearing your yeah. story is just reminds me of Megan's because, uh, you know, it, 
she ultimately couldn't go on past six, right? right? And and she too, I, it's interesting because Willow died in 2018 and she was six. So that means she was born in 2012. So, <laughs> yeah. it, so you know, she just missed all those new, brand new treatments kind of too, yes. just the same way. But, but yeah. obviously must have had a slightly milder case than your Corey because yes. was able to, you know, do better. Yes. And I'm quite sure she wasn't on a ventilator as young as he was. You know, yeah. she just slowly got weaker. Yeah, um, it's during our time, right after we got the diagnosis, I remember one of the one of the social workers had come in and she had given me some type of paper. I'm not sure what it was, but it had, you know, the foundation at the time, it was called Families of SMA. Mm-hmm. They have since changed the name to Cure SMA. But, you know, she gave me this information. She's like, you know, the families that we deal with who are affected by SMA, you know, we've heard that this group is fantastic. You know, you should contact them. And so I, I did ultimately contact them late that night and I almost immediately got a response back and they were just fantastic throughout the whole process. I mean, anything that I needed, they were sending me, they sent materials as far as research for me to read and just so much stuff. And so after he passed away, I ended up, he passed away in November. I think it was maybe April. Um, they held their yearly walk and roll. And so, you know, my whole family, we were like, you know, we're going to go to this. We got to, we have to do something. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So we ended up going to the walk and roll. And um, from that moment on, I was hooked because it was, it was more than just a foundation I saw that like they really were a huge family and Mm -hmm. even though I did not have a child living with SMA anymore they still you know greeted me with open arms and and treated me so well and so ever since then I have been working with Cure SMA I actually hold a leadership position now and so in the last three-ish, almost four years, myself and another mom, we were working on the newborn screening in Ohio, and we were able to get that passed. Mm-hmm. And so now that we have a treatment and yeah. we have the newborn screening mm-hmm. and these kids are getting diagnosed early and treated, it's, I can't describe the feeling because, you know, I'm, I get, I get contacted by some of these moms and they're like, I don't know how to thank you for doing what you did because, you know, now my child is alive and my child has a chance. And, and these kids, when they get the treatment are developing like perfectly normal kids. And it's crazy to me because I'm like, you know, he just missed that just by a little bit. But from his story that I've been able to share and I've, been to Washington a few times and I've spoken to state representatives and congressmen and, you know, really drove home how important this was for newborn mm-hmm. screening so that mm-hmm. we can get that early intervention. So if that is what it was meant to happen, I think I'm, I have found peace with it. Right. You're not like totally okay with it. It's not like it's worth yes. it, but yes. if this had to happen, this good can come of it, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's funny. I just, you know, I've been in pediatrics now for like 20 years. And when I, when I started, our newborn screen detected five illnesses. And we, 
We only tested yes. the the reason you only did five illnesses because you only test for illnesses that you can actually do something about and that would have that you could start treatment, some sort of treatment yeah. early in infancy that would change the outcome. So that's why it was really only those five things. And I, I can't even list them now. I mean, I can list some of them in my head, but I'm not going to even say them out loud. But yeah. as, you know, it got easier and easier to test, it had been sort of controversial as to how much money do you spend to try to do these rare diseases if you can't do anything about it anyway. Right. Right. So SMA would have been one of those at, at back at that time, even when he was born. Like, would there be a reason to test for SMA? Not really, because you wouldn't have been able to change the outcome. And in exactly. some ways, I mean, I've talked to people, you know, whose children die of sudden unexplained death of epilepsy. I've, that one comes to mind. And that would you have wanted to know just how likely that your child was going to die did you want to know way ahead of time at the very beginning would that have made things better in some way right. and so for sma if you on day of life three would have found out that he was going to die for sure would that have actually made your life better well probably not exactly. but things change as soon as you can do a treatment yes because when you can do a treatment now it's a devastating thing to find out at three days of age that your son or daughter has SMA, but at least there's something you can do about it. And if you start that treatment before they have symptoms, holy cow, it's way better. Yes. Such a difference. I, I still, you know, every time there's, there's one little boy in particular that, you know, I follow his, his parents on Facebook. Now he was the the first baby that was diagnosed in Ohio via the newborn screening after they implemented it. I mean, I sit and I look at his videos and it's just, I mean, it, it brings me to tears every time. Yeah, I'm sure I'm it like, does. I can't like, this is so fantastic that you yeah. can do that. Like you can do all the things that you're doing. I just watched him the other day, like hitting a baseball off of a tee and, and running and his house. And I'm like, that is incredible to me. Yeah. And that, you know, makes it a little easier to live with mm -hmm. for sure. For sure. So. Because I know for me, I see kids that are going through mental health issues and maybe suicidal thoughts and things like that. And all that happens to me, like I constantly find myself looking to the mother, especially and just thinking so desperately, I don't want you to be me. Yes. And you can look at that little boy's mother and say, I helped so she's not me. Right? Because yes, exactly. you just you just don't want her to be you. And for her yes. son to have to go through what your son did. And if you can see those happy videos, it just, I mean, I know a little bit of you, I'm sure has little pangs of envy yes. sometimes yeah. that you wish it could have been, but your grieving mama's heart is just so happy that yes. it's not, that she's not in your shoes, right? Yes, every time. Yeah, yeah. It's crazy to me, and I still, I sit back and, like, look at the differences from now until then. You know, I just went to a leadership conference before COVID happened. Mm -hmm. One of the genetic doctors got up and was talking, and he's like, 
going over the death rates from the last few years from SMA and you just watch these numbers like just drastically go down. And I, he said at one point he made a statement that, you know, we're entering a world where SMA is no longer going to be fatal. And that just like blew my mind. Cause I'm like, you're right. You know, it's, it's getting that diagnosis for parents today is so different than the day that I got it. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's crazy. Yeah. Crazy. The it's, difference. It's funny. Just a few months after I met Megan and learned about Willow, I get like every week, the American Academy of Pediatrics, I think it is, or no, this is the American Board of Pediatrics. They're different. Send out these question of the week to kind of for continuing medical education purposes. And the question of the week was about a baby with SMA and starting treatment. And I like, I mean, I read the whole question and I just kind of started to cry because I just thought of poor Willow and how, you know, had she just been born a little bit later (laughs) when I'm like doing this, this question is totally different than the question would have been six years ago. They wouldn't even given me that question to try to, you know, educate me on the treatments of SMA. It's just, it's so different. Everything's so different. Yes. Mm -hmm. It's it's very different. It's, it, it never, it has, it's never gotten easier you know, through these almost nine years. That's what I was just going to ask you about. Mm -hmm. It definitely stings less because of all the advancements that I've gotten to see. Mm -hmm. Talk about your other daughter and your daughter and what things were like with her. And you know what I mean? When you were going through all of this and in the hospital and just afterwards. It was a very hard time while we were in the hospital she ultimately, I actually held her back in kindergarten that year because she missed quite a bit of school because around the time that we were in the hospital, it was flu season. So she obviously being so young herself was not allowed at the hospital, but only, I think she was allowed to come twice when we were in a regular room and that was it. So for her, it was at the time I didn't realize how confusing it was for her. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember coming home from the hospital. She stayed with my parents and my grandparents on and off while we were there because I didn't leave. So, you know, for 42 days, she was basically without mom. Mm-hmm. And knowing that something is not right, but not being able to understand it. So I remember coming home when we finally came home from the hospital Um, that's the first place I wanted to go. So I remember I had to tell her and I'm thinking, you know, I I don't know how to tell her this. I don't know how to tell her that her baby brother's not coming home because she just adored him. I remember telling her kind of that, you know, he just got really sick and he had to go, um, you know, live with Jesus and he wouldn't be coming home. And, and she was outside playing at the time when I kind of pulled her aside and she's just like, okay, mom, it's okay. And then she, you know, just went back on playing. And so I thought, you know, okay, well, she's, she's still young. It's, you know, probably Mm -hmm. doesn't, she doesn't understand what's happening. And so I kind of let it go. And, and I was sort of so focused on my own grief for a little while that I forgot about hers. 
until it, it wasn't until, you know, the end of that school year, her, um, her kindergarten teacher had been great throughout the process. And, you know, she understood what was happening and, you know, they sent her some treats afterwards and they were fantastic. And, um, she had asked me to come in for like a parent teacher conference towards the end of the year. And she's like, you know, she's like every morning when we get to school, we do these journals and the kids write about something that they've done, you know, that night or over the weekend or, you know, and they, they, it was, um, some notebook paper lines. And at the top, there was always a space to draw pictures. And so she's like, you know, normally I send these home at the, you know, once we complete one, um, she's like, but I've kind of held on to Kylie's for a little while because I didn't, I didn't know when to give them to you. So it had been a couple a couple months since he had passed at this point. And so she handed me these, these paper journals and I started flipping through them and I couldn't believe almost every single journal entry that she had. And this is a kindergartner was talking about her and her baby brother. And she would write stories about what we had done the night before or over the weekend, but she still included him in it as if he was there. And then some passages that she did, she would draw these pictures and she'd fill up the whole square and it was all these, you know, bright colors and abstract kind of images that she was drawing. And then there was always this little baby in the middle of it. And she would talk about how her brother was in heaven and how much she missed him. And I just remember that tearing a hole straight through me because I realized, you know, I've been so focused on me that I forgot how it was affecting her. And I didn't realize it. So we have this... Um, children's grief support group in Cincinnati that's put on by hospice and so I I've gotten her enrolled in it and when we started going to it I couldn't believe the difference in her that that I didn't see it at yeah. the time because she was definitely very affected by it yeah but you know what she was doing she was trying to protect you yes even as five it's so crazy how even young kids try to protect you so she went to yes. school where she felt like it was a really safe place and she wrote about her grief, but she didn't want to do it at home with you because she didn't no. want to see you hurting. Nope. She didn't think that I would see those. And, and it was, it was crazy to me when we started, you know, when she started interacting, they, they kind of broke the groups up by type of loss yeah. and by age. And so the group that she was in was with kids, her age who had lost siblings and I think cousins or something along those lines. And so it, I had to drag her there the first day. She's like, I don't want to go, mom. I don't want to go. I don't want to go here. You know, I don't want to do this. And when we went to leave, she comes out of her group because the parents kind of waited in their own little yeah. room until they were done. She kind of runs out and she's like, you know, when do I get to come back? Oh. And I was like, oh, did you like it? You know, do you want to come back? And she's like, yeah, mom, these kids are like me. Yeah. So that was, I was like, wow, you know, she has gone this whole time thinking that she's the only, only kid, mm -hmm. the only kid who has experienced a loss like this or her hurt like this, but she, she wasn't old enough to understand that like it, there are kids like that. It does happen. Yeah. Cause it's not really talked about, No, you know, and I, I'm so glad that that I went with that group because she ended up doing it, participating in it for a couple years. 
And mm-hmm. I feel like it, it helped her tremendously. And I even feel like, I mean, it helped me at times too, hearing about, they would do um, lessons and they would uh, like incorporate some kind of craft with it. Mm-hmm. And one of the crafts that they did actually stuck with me for a really long time. And, you know, they took these, these little flower pots that they had gotten and they threw them on the ground and broke them into pieces. And then they gave them super glue and they had them on each piece. They had them write something that something or someone that they loved and something that, you know, someone that's there for them. And so she had all these pieces with hobbies and with family members written on it. And then they had to glue them back together at the end of it. They explained to them, your pot doesn't look the same as it did before. And there's pieces missing here and there, and it doesn't quite fit the same way it did but all of those things inside, you're able to put it back together. And so I was like, wow. That is really great that they did that. Because I feel like I had that revelation on my own at some point, but gosh, it took me a while. Yes. Yeah, it it did. And it was very helpful, helpful for me because, you know, I was in a place where I felt very alone almost because I feel like I know there's like a quote that goes around that says someone who loses a spouse is a widow and someone that loses a parent is an orphan, but there's no, there's no term for somebody who loses a child and people don't know how to react to you and they don't know how to respond to you. Just kind of stay away. (laughs) Yes. And and don't talk about it. And I, I remember going back to work a week or so after Corey's funeral and no one spoke to me for the first probably two hours that I was there. Nobody said a word to me. And then, yeah. you know, finally somebody walked up and, and said, you know, oh, I'm, I'm so glad you're back. And I just broke down and cried because I'm like, you're the first person that's talked to me. You're not going to hurt my feelings by talking about my son. It's, right. It's, and I may cry. To me. But yeah. yeah. But it's okay. You're right. You know, to me, it's, it's sadder to me now, nine years later, because he's not talked about a lot anymore because everyone else has gone on with their lives. My grief is not front and center to them anymore. And his ninth birthday was this past Tuesday. And the day is always hit or miss for me. Some days I'm okay. And some days it's just harder. And you know, this was one of the harder years and I feel like it had a lot to do with, you know, I started a new job a month ago. And so yeah. I haven't really gotten to know these people yet. And nobody knows. I wasn't able to take off work because, you know, it's a new job. So I had to go and nobody knows. So Tuesday was just a Tuesday for them. Mm-hmm. But Tuesday was one of the worst days of my entire existence to yep. me. But it's like they don't. They didn't realize that. And even, I mean, I even had friends who at the end of the day, you know, text me and they were like, oh my God, I forgot, you know, I'm so sorry. I, you know, can I do anything? Can I say anything? And, and they felt so bad. And I'm like, I mean, it's not your fault. It's not, you know, your life has continued. It's so hard because I'm like the, the more and more that we, the more years that go by, He's just, he's thought about less by other people. And I think that's Mm -hmm. the hardest part for me now. Yeah, I think so too. I'm just at three years and I, I see that already. And it's, it's 
just so hard. I mean, yeah, I think at work and just stuff, people just forget. They just forget yeah. that there are going to be certain things that are just going to still trigger me because for them, like you said, their lives just went yeah. on totally fine. And there are a few people that like really still kind of hurt with me and I think still remember it every time but a lot of people don't a exactly no yeah. it's it's hard yeah I also I get I get a lot of I have a lot of people say you know when I do ultimately share with them my story and share what happened there's been several times where I've, I've gotten a comment you know well at least he was only three months old yeah and it just takes me back every time because I'm like I, I don't think that you know three months of memories is any easier to deal with than no. 14, 15, 18 years of memories. It's that that's my child. So yeah. I just think people feel like what well, some people feel like they need to try to find a way to put a positive spin on it, which I don't know why they do that, yeah. but that's what they do. They just feel like oh, I got to do something because we're now we're talking in this really dark, bad place. So I want to make there be some sort of spin. So it's the, oh, this is all part of the greater plan or, you know, at least he's not suffering or at least he went quickly or something like that. Or at yeah. least he only had three months. I mean, it's this it's this need to paint a little bit of a brighter picture, like to cheer you up somehow. Because I do feel like they're doing yeah. it to kind of, they feel like they should sort of try to lighten the mood somehow and make things a little better. So they try to put a positive spin on it. My dad is horrible at doing this. He does this to me all the time. It drives me crazy. Yes. He is always wanting to try to kind of cheer me up. And sometimes I just would love it for him to just be sad, yes. you know, and just please just don't. Cause I end up not talking about Andy to him because I know that he will try to somehow yes. flip it around and cheer me up and I can't handle it if I'm having a bad day. So then we end up not talking, which is yeah. not great, but you know, it just ends up happening. I mean, I just, that's part of my goal with the podcast is, is having people feel a little more comfortable sitting in the sad space. Yes. Because you, I mean, you have to talk about it. And on Tuesday, I felt like I didn't, I mean, I don't have a lot of people to talk about it to anymore because yeah. they're not sad anymore. And, and I am, and I don't, it's hard for me to talk with my parents almost for the opposite, because I feel like my parents still are very sad. Mm -hmm. And so they almost overwhelm me with their sadness that I feel like I don't have an opportunity to express my sadness if that makes mm -hmm. sense yeah yeah so that makes yeah. it difficult for me yeah that well. is hard too <laughs> when you feel like you're comforting someone else yeah yeah like this is not my job to comfort you now your <laughs> job is to try to comfort me yeah, you know exactly. I mean it's different like if my daughter's having a bad day or my husband's having a bad day or my son I can comfort yeah. them but I feel like you get out of that little window they got to turn to somebody else. They can't turn to me to yes. comfort them. They have to get their support from the outside and then put theirs on me. Yeah. I may, it feels a little selfish in some ways, but I, it's the way it kind of has to be. Yeah, it is. And, you know, I try to do little things, um, especially 
you know, for my daughter. So like every year for his birthday, I either, I will make or buy a birthday cake depending on how I'm feeling. And um, at some point in the day, you know, we'll light a candle and kind yeah. of blow it out. I typically can never bring myself to eat it, but you know, she's, she's 14 now. She loves cake. So, <laughs> yeah. so that's always good. But you know, now I'm, I'm married and I have two stepkids as well. And so it gets a little harder because, you know, yeah. they didn't know me when this happened. They don't have that connection yeah. really. So they're just excited about cake. And, you know, my stepson this year, you know, every five minutes after dinner, can we cut the cake? Can we cut the cake? Can we cut? And I'm like, you know, I can't, he's nine. I'm not gonna, I can't yeah. express to him that like, this is, this is a sad cake for me. It's <laughs> right. Not, right. Like, I, I'm not, no, I'm not ready to cut it yet, but you know, I, I have to, I still have to find a way to celebrate it because, you know, it was his birthday. So, yeah. And we've had cake too. So we've had, yeah, three cake. And so his favorite cake, there was this, there's this place. I don't know if they have it down in Cincinnati, but nothing bunt cakes that they sell yes. these. They're amazing yes. cakes, right? They're amazing yes. bunt cakes. Delicious. I'm doing a plug here and they're not paying me, but they're awesome <laughs> cakes. Andy loved these cakes and he loved the lemon. Loved it. That's my so favorite. for Oh, yes. it's so good, right? It's my it favorite is. too. So we have to go get he had to always go get the lemon cake. And in fact, the day before he died, one of the last things that I did with Andy really is we went shopping because it was his foster brother's birthday. And we went to the Nothing Bunt Cake store and got a lemon bunt cake. And it was the first time Andy had actually gone in the store. And they serve free samples, or they did before COVID. I'm sure they don't now. Oh, but yeah. he, like, ate a free sample. This is great. He was so excited to be in the store and to pick up the cake. He actually, he's 14 years old, and he actually skipped out to the car. He was holding my hand and skipping to the car because he was so happy to have this bunt cake. And... All of my friends know how Andy feels about the bunt cakes. And so, you know, the first birthday, I think we got three bunt cakes and then little buntlets, like little cakes. Yeah. And some, I had all sorts of bunt cakes. The second one, I don't know. I had one or two. This last year, two bunt cakes at my door lemon bunt cakes and so one of them we end up having to stick in the freezer one will eat one will stick in the freezer this year was really beautiful because his best friend came and ate the bunt cake so that was nice i get nervous and sad thinking about the day that somebody doesn't bring me a bunt cake yes because going in there myself to get it will be really hard yeah but i kind of feel like i need the bunt cake every yeah. time yeah, right? And you, I need to honor him and I need to. that cake. Yeah. But some of the things you just still can't do. And I actually, I mean, I guess it comes to the point where I'm going to have to ask someone to do it for me. Yeah. But I'm just going to kind of hope and pray that it just shows up. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's funny, too. I almost feel like the Bunt Cake store needed a little bit of a warning. Like, make sure you have plenty of lemon yes. on the 21st of April because there are going to be yeah. people buying lemon. Yeah, I definitely so. get it. This year in particular, I ended up buying the cake instead of making it because, you know, my work schedule and training is kind of <coughs> hectic. And so when I went in to get it, you know, the cashiers always make small talk. And she's like, oh, you know, whose birthday is it? And I'm like, oh, it's my son's birthday. Oh, my gosh, how old is he? And it's like, it's hard. Right. 
because then you just go on and you just say, oh, he's nine. Or you just have to pretend it's okay. I mean, that's almost like easier because then if you throw out there like, well, he would have been nine, but he died. Yes. Like, really, do you need to put that on the cashier? Probably not. Although there are some days that I would be in the mood and I will just put it on. I would just do it anyway. (laughs) Yeah. And then like, you know, along the same lines, it's sad for me almost because sometimes it is easier just to say that. And so, you know, Mm -hmm. it depends on now that I have been working at my current, you know, place for a month now, I have started to share my story. But, you know, those first couple days, it's, oh, do you have any kids? Yeah. How many kids do you have? you know, two and two stepkids. And I just kind of leave him out of it because it, to me, it's easier to just slide past it than it is to sit and explain it and to get the pity faces. And then, and then it makes me sad because I don't want to leave him out of it. Yeah. But people don't know how to respond to that. So I know it's very hard. I, a lot of times now it's funny because I still have my foster son, even though he's aged out and he's no longer in the foster system, but you know, for me, he's my foster son forever. So I used to say when people ask me that question, I would say four, three biological and one foster son. And then, but now it's like four, three biological, one of whom died, and then a foster son. And like, it's way too complicated. So a lot of times I just say three. And I think in my mind, I'm counting Andy. (laughs) And then if they ask further I can throw Valeriano yeah. in as 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 the third one. It's just it just depends on kind of the mood I'm in and where I really want to go because it's just such a it's just such a question that women ask other women. It is, yeah. They just it's, it's just like a natural question. It's like it is. You know, it seems like so. Do you work outside the home? And how many kids you have? That's like <laughs> right. those are the questions you get. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's hard. Well, thank you so much for sharing, Corey, with us today. Is there any little last tidbit that you would want to share, a bit of advice that you've kind of come to over the last nine years, anything? The only advice that I really give other moms is that as hard as it sounds, eventually your world continues to turn at some yeah. point. And it's yeah. hard to grasp because you think, well, no, it's not you know, how does my world turn without my son? But one day you just kind of wake up and it is. Yeah. And I think it goes back a little bit to your flower pot analogy too, right? You're still a flower pot and you can still grow flowers in it. It's cracked and it's not as pretty as it used to be, but you can still grow flowers. Yep. Well, thank you so much, Stephanie. I really appreciate you being on the show today. Thank you. Mm thanks for listening to losing a child always andy's mom please subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast player we are always looking for new show ideas if you'd like to be a guest know someone who'd be a great guest or have a show idea please email us at marcy at be sure to visit the webpage andysmom.com for more content including marcy's blog There you can also sign up to receive updates via email. Together, let's work to inspire hope, one day at a time.